Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. This morning, we are joined by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Max Neeson. He covers all things biotech, pharma, and healthcare. Max, you've got a column now, which I just read, talking about Kodak. I'm looking at the shares of Kodak here, uh, up 12% today, uh, up 700% year-to-date, up 1,400% over the trailing 12 months. It now has a market cap of $1.63 billion. I didn't even know this company was still in existence as a public equity. What's going on with Kodak? Uh, So what's going on driving this this? incredible stock price increase is is a deal uh, alone from from the government which is intended to help them kind of make a transition into into a new business uh which is the making of of drug product of of active pharmaceutical ingredients uh part of kind of an ongoing policy effort to to bring more of that production uh back into the united states um, you know, which you know, that that business is really currently de- very dependent on on China and India. I mean, in addition to the sort of political leanings of of the current administration, uh, you know, there are potential national security concerns about disruption. There have been quality control issues. So, you know, it's not a not a insane policy move. But but the thing that's a little bit more difficult to understand is why Kodak, right? And, and secondly, um, why why this loan well significant would lead to, to such an enormous increase in the stock because this is a, a company that, that while it has some chemical experience is is new to this business which is a very difficult very low margin commodity business it moved out of the united states for a reason because it's much cheaper to do it elsewhere it's hard to be cost competitive here so the the imagined future where the you know kodak does this sustainably and profitably seems very unlikely to me. I just want to bring it to our listeners' attention that several outlets are now reporting that Herman Cain, the former presidential candidate, has died from COVID-19. Once again, Herman Cain has died from COVID-19. We'll bring you more details when we get them. But uh, another death among the 150,000-plus deaths that we are counting every day. Max, how concerning is that that we are seeing numbers rise again in places like New Jersey, which had tried to sort of tamp it down and had managed to do so? Uh, it's, it's very concerning and, and, you know, unfortunately, maybe inevitable, absent uh, you know, really, really strict policy or, or you know, profound adherence to, to social distancing guidelines going forward. I, I think the country is in, in a pretty concerning place where, well, you do have some some plateauing uh, or, or decline of, of case growth in, you know, the initial hotspots, Texas, initial new hotspots, Texas, Florida, Arizona. You still have many cases there also. Uh, deaths, as as you know, people have consistently warned, catching up to that case, you know, that past case growth, and then many other examples besides New Jersey around the country that you know, while not as acute as those hotspots yet, still seeing very significant levels of case growth. All, all of which um, you know makes any further opening, makes school in the fall harder, and will lead to both you know more deaths 
and the, the sort of unknown long-term consequences of infection, um, which, you know, more more research pops up every day, indicating that the possibility of, you know, heart, lung damage that may be durable. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a scary time. All right. So that brings us to the continuing ongoing view of potential for vaccines. Johnson & Johnson saw a headline, vaccine protects monkeys from COVID with single shot. How important is the J&J uh, news there? Um, you know, it's a little bit of both. You you always have to be particularly cautious about, um, you know, non-human data. There's a saying among people who do infectious disease research, um, you know, mice lie, monkeys exaggerate. Uh, so, you know, there there's... <laughs> That's a thing, you really? You kind of do have to view it in the context that, well, well, this can tell you something valuable, give you an indication of the likelihood that, that a vaccine is promising. And in this case, the, the particularly promising potential of, of a single dose effort, you really do need to see it in humans before you make any conclusions. And, and that's something where, um, you know, the J&J vaccine is running a little bit behind. It, it just began it, its first in human studies. So uh, I, I'll, I personally wait for that before making uh, too, too firm of a verdict on, on the promise of the vaccine, though um, definitely, you know, what you want to see from a, a primate challenge study, you know, it wasn't, it went well in, within the limitations of the study. And we have confirmation now on the Bloomberg website that Herman Cain, the PCJ executive, of course, has died. 74 years old, he released a statement via Twitter on July 2nd that he was hospitalised in the Atlanta area after contracting coronavirus. And that was less than two weeks after attending President Donald Trump's indoor rally in Tulsa, Arizona. He didn't know when or how he contracted the disease. But again, Herman Cain, the former prominent Republican who actually was running for a White House uh, position, if you'd like to put it that way, has died from COVID-19. Max, thank you. This isn't the last death, unfortunately, from this awful pandemic. And again, we're more than 150,000 people down here in the United States now and uh, much more than that globally. So, Paul, another prominent figure dying from COVID-19. You have to wonder if this will change the conversation in any way across the country. But uh, unfortunately, it's hard to see that happening. It is time to take a closer look at that economic data, as well as what the Federal Reserve Chair said yesterday. No better man than to bring in David Kotok now of Cumberland Advisors. David, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Vani. It's nice to talk with you. Well, it is, except that we got a second quarter annualized figure of down 32.9% for GDP growth. What does that mean for the economy going forward? What should we read into this? Well, a remarkable number. We've already had a lot of conversation about it. Um, It was expected to be huge, and it validated the expectation. And it says nothing about where we're going to be in the fourth quarter and next year. And that's what's key. Markets, are, I think, are reacting not to the GDP number with this red tape today. I think they're reacting to the impasse from the U.S. Congress, which invites risk, and the blame game between the two largest economies in the world, China and the United States. And I think that's what's driving this market to a red tape, not GDP. All right, Dave, let's let's go there. Um, we had Kevin Cerulli, Bloomberg's Washington correspondent, on earlier 
with Tom Keene and myself uh, on surveillance. He believes that from his contacts in Washington that something will, in fact, get done this week. What's your outlook for the fiscal stimulus? What do you think the market is really looking for to come out of Washington? Yeah, well, I, I saw the piece with Kevin. Um, as you know, I'm a regular surveillance watcher every morning. And I, I think the, the cutting edge is where are they going to meet in the middle the issue of the liabilities is not resolved, or maybe it will become so. How do you deal with a retroactive liability deletion on the part of local governments, on the part of businesses, what to do with the liability for COVID, and how do you establish proof in a pandemic? These are all so complicated. My expectation is the markets would like to see a meet in the middle compromise. They don't expect three plus trillion, and they don't expect one trillion, and they do expect uh, some amount of sustenance to keep 30 or 40 million Americans bridged, at least in part, across the gap for the rest of the year. Markets would like that. Businesses would like that. The citizens would like that. And we would get beyond this impasse, which you indicated this morning is possibly going to happen. Is it realistic, David, to think, though, that, you know, the administration of all of this can get done in the way that Republicans are expecting in the sense of, you know, okay, down to $200 extra from the federal government per week for a couple of months, and then, you know, by then, everybody will be able to get 70% of what they had been making. Is that even possible? There is no extra money for states to do this. Um, well, that's that's the profound question, Vani. It's a fair one. You know, I, I, I reflect on history, as you know, it, I'm a student of history for a very long time, and I remember Winston Churchill rising in the House of Commons. I wasn't there at the time. I was mm-hmm. very young, but I remember reading his words in 1947 in the House of Commons after World War II and all the chaos that followed, and he stood up in the House of Commons and he says, it has been said that democracy is the worst system of government, and he paused, And he said, except for all the others. And we are testing Churchill's wisdom right now today in the United States, as we have been all year. There's truth to that. That's our system. As crazy as it is, it's still better than a place where you live under a dictator and an autocrat and you have no rights. And so I'm a long-term believer in this enduring, marvelous experiment that started uh, over 200 years ago. So I think we'll work this out the hard way, but we'll get there. So, David, what's an investor to do here uh, as we th- th- look at these dire economic data? Yes, it's a backward looking, uh, but it's really sobering. What should investors do here as they think about the next 12 to 18 months? Uh, I, I, what investors should do uh, depends on their point of view. In Cumberland's case, in the stock market, We have some cash reserve, but we are invested in the U.S. stock market. We are overweight the sectors which we think benefit. Healthcare is a great example, of course. And we are underweight or avoiding the troubled places. Trying to pick the right cruise ship company that will survive is trying to avoid a falling knife. Why Why do that? In the rest of the world, we are deploying monies because we think pandemics run their course. And in the Asian countries specifically, we see the ability of governments to respond better than we have done. And they are doing that. Why? They learned with 
2003 with SARS. They prepared. They have tracing, testing. They have all the facilities in place. They apply technology. They have apps on their phones, whether it's in a country like China or it's in South Korea or Taiwan. So we favor looking at Asian recovery leading the way coming out of this, and some are already doing it. And in the United States, we have to get through this forest fire in the country now. We don't have three ways. We don't have flattening the curve. We have a forest fire. It's burning. It doesn't burn forever, but it will burn for a while. David, thanks so much for that. We really appreciate it. David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors. They have over $3 billion in assets under management. We always appreciate Dave's perspective, his broad perspective, Vani, and uh, you know, putting things in context, I think, for investors. I think that's uh, investors value that. Well, Dave has seen a few of these. He's yes. seen pandemics. He has seen crises. He's seen crises caused by all different sorts of things. He's seen market bubbles burst. And uh, he's in the game more than ever. So <laughs> obviously right. there is another side uh, to the end of all of this. Very excited to welcome our next guest. Dr. David Scorton is cardiologist and president and CEO of the Association of American Medical Colleges, or the AAMC. He joins us now from Washington, D.C. Following an op-ed in the Washington Post, which was entitled, We Need a COVID-19 Reset, So We Developed a Comprehensive Plan to Do Just That. Dr. Scorton, thanks for joining. What does a reset look like? Is it a countrywide lockdown? Uh, No, Bonnie, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, It's more complicated than that. Uh, We laid out uh, nine immediate steps that we believe the country needs to take and two longer-term actions. And among those nine steps, the big three are, will not surprise you, number one is to do a better job on making sure that we have the supplies we need from personal protective equipment to the lab supplies that will allow us to boost up testing. Number two is testing itself and really nothing else that we can do in the country that we want to do, like reopen the economy, go back to school, go back to college, all of those things will depend on a better ability to do testing and turn it around more quickly than we're doing it right now. And then thirdly, we believe there should be national standards on face coverings and that masks should be mandatory in areas of growing community spread. And then there's many other uh, aspects, but those those are the ones that I believe are the most urgent we need to work on now. Doctor, I guess for me, the biggest frustration is, particularly as I look at the U.S. relative to other countries around the world, there has not been a national response policy to what is clearly a national problem. It is left to state by state. Some states like New York have done it better than some other states like Florida, for example. Will there ever be a national response? And if there is, where does it need to come from? Does it need to come from the White House? Well, when you ask, will there ever be a national response? If I had that crystal ball and it was as effective as that, I'd probably be um, sitting in your seat and telling people which way to go. But um, what I would say is uh, the first two words of my op-ed in yesterday's post were, we're failing. And I mean we very sincerely. All of us need to pull together individual decisions like whether to wear a mask, whether to be socially distant, whether to pay attention to the evidence-based advice we're getting from the top health professionals in the country. And yes, we believe that there is a, is a role for government to develop more national policies, not only the administration, Congress, but there's also a role for the private sector. We think that the manufacturing sector, for example, 
could help us, but we're playing catch up on these supply issues. So there's something here from everybody. But yes, there does need to be a national view of how to go forward. And we tried to present that view in our roadmap. Is there a time limit for this? I mean, will there be a point beyond which sort of all is lost? I don't mean to be, you know, totally apocalyptic about this, but, uh, you know, at a certain point, it's too late to implement proactive measures. Well, um, I'm a physician and a scientist, and I'm a very, very strong believer in biomedical research. Right this minute, Bonnie and Paul, there are people all over the world working on robust vaccines. Right this minute, there's people at universities and in pharmaceutical industry working on antiviral uh, treatments and so on. And as we've learned more about the coronavirus on the front lines of hospitals across the world, we've learned more and more how to provide supportive care. So I remain an optimist about this. Nonetheless, if we don't make some changes and soon in supplies, testing, face coverings, and some other areas, um, we're going to have a lot more deaths. And I'd like to just insert one issue uh, related to finance, if I might. Uh, one of the difficulties of a, a national system of health insurance that's uh, over 50% of people insured through their employer is at a time where employment dips, then health care coverage dips as well. And one of our immediate action recommendations is to immediately expand health insurance through COBRA. That's a mechanism already in place. But uh, many workers cannot afford to pay both the employer and employee premiums for COBRA when they're out of work. So we're asking for Congress to consider uh, at least partly subsidizing COBRA for a while while we're in such a pickle in terms of employment and a reduction in health insurance coverage. Doctor, one of the big topics right now as it relates to uh, our response to the pandemic is the reopening of schools. We're weeks away in many parts of the country. Many parts of the country are actually reopening now. How do you think this should play out? Well, one of our recommendations is to establish, uh, to Vani's point earlier, national criteria, and your point, national criteria for K-12 school reopenings, and to immediately convene a working group to study different approaches. So to bring together the expertise to do this right, we need to bring the educators, the teachers. We need to bring some voice from parents and families. And of course, we need to bring the voice of public health, epidemiology, and infectious diseases. There was a recent uh, consensus report that I uh, commend to you and your listeners from the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine just a few weeks ago which laid out a very important step-by-step process for reopening. And so we have a bit of a roadmap from the National Academies, one of the most prestigious groups in the country or in the world. And I think what we need to do is make a, a national commitment to listening to some of these recommendations. And then it has to be interpreted like everything else locally, depending on the amount of community spread, the resources available, and the different neighborhoods and school districts we're talking about, there's a great, great difference, as you know, in the resources available to school districts based on local property tax or revenue and so on. So, yes, we need to pay attention to this, and the National Academies report is a terrific place to start. Doctor, you're a cardiologist as well as everything else, and I'm curious as to what's been the most surprising thing for you as a result of this COVID pandemic. What does the disease do in terms of what you're a specialist in that terrifies you? Well, um, from the cardiology point of view, that has not been as prominent as uh, issues, as you know, with the lungs, 
with the neurological system and other things. But I'll say as just a physician in general, I used to run a division of general internal medicine. Uh, we call this a novel coronavirus because it's the first time that we've known about this coronavirus affecting humans. And the fact that there can be such robust spread of the disease from asymptomatic people is quite unusual. And of course, this makes it much, much harder to manage the communities because you don't really know who's got it. Uh, a, a medical commentator a couple, three months ago said, we should all act as if we have coronavirus. Put a mask on, stay away from other people, and so on and so forth, except those in our immediate family with whom we're living. Right. And I think that's a very interesting way to look at it. But um, that's been a big, a big surprise. And then the other big, big surprise has been the chameleon-like effects of this virus on various different bodily systems. And I'm sure you right. all have followed the lingering effects, the neurological effects, as well as those effects from the immune system on the yep. lungs. Be deaths. Dr. David Scordon, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your thoughts uh, and opinions. Dave, Dr. David Scordon, cardiologist and president and CEO of the Association of American Medical Colleges, giving us his thoughts on what a national policy could look like. Well, tech analysts and tech investors are going to be more than busy after the close today. We have the big four uh, tech companies, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, uh, and Alphabet reporting numbers. I don't think that's ever happened, uh, Vanya, one time at the same time on the same day reporting. Certainly so gonna be, It's going to go. So there's going to be a lot to parse through from big tech. Let's get a little bit of a preview there. We can do that with Barry Ritholtz. He's a Bloomberg opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. And of course, he's the founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. So Barry, if you needed some color on what's going on in the tech space, I think you're going to get it after the close today. You're going to get a lot more than color. You're going to have a full <laughs> painting as to how four of the six companies that have been driving two-thirds of the S&P 500, how well they're doing. And uh, it's going to be interesting. Remember back in February, Apple was the first company that came out and said, given this nascent coronavirus pandemic, we have no visibility for the rest yeah. of the year. They were way ahead of the curve on that. I'm really curious to see what they're going to come out and say. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, will they all show stellar results, you think, Barry? It feels like they're some of the only winners out of all of this. Um, well, they clearly have been um, uh, part of the, the stocks that have been, been driving gains. Take, take the p 10 biggest names in the S&P 500 on an equal weight basis, they're up 34% for the year. Take the next 490 um, stocks in the S&P 500 on an equal weight basis, they're down 8% for the year. So the the earnings health of the of the fang so-called fang stocks are really important. But I don't know if investors are going to give them a pass. If anybody says, well, this sector did well and this division did well, but we really saw uh, soft sales in this sector, uh, maybe it's iPhones, maybe it's um, some form of advertising on Facebook or Google that they expect will return once things get back to normal. It's interesting. I'm looking, you know, just at the, the advertising-driven names that we're going to hear from tonight in terms of Facebook and, and Google, uh, parent is Alphabet. Um, those stocks, you know, they're, you know, 
and also looking for a significantly slower revenue growth because, let's face it, advertisers aren't advertising that much. I don't care if it's on a radio or TV ad or a newspaper or on the internet, yet those stocks are still up 13%. So I guess tech investors, Barry, are you know, willing to look towards the other side of this. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows you, you, movies aren't advertising, restaurants aren't advertising, anything that's a, a face-to-face experience where people have a tendency to um, put that on hold until we get past uh, the, the pandemic. Obviously, that's down. I have to think investors understand that, and they're looking at 2021, maybe even past that, to 2022. It's it's hard to it's really hard to say. And one of the bigger concerns was regulatory overreach in DC. Based on what we saw yesterday, I don't think these four companies have a whole lot to worry about uh, in terms of the government uh, figuring out what they even do, more or less <laughs> regulating them or breaking them up. Barry, I mean, is this the line in the sand after this, if there are no consequences in any way, regulatory or antitrust or otherwise, do they get carte blanche? And do we see somebody like Jeff Bezos then start increasing prices on Amazon, which was always the original goal anyway? You know, the only historical frame of reference that that I can compare this to was Microsoft in the late 90s. And if you remember, Microsoft owned the desktop, and any time a new idea or feature or a little software uh, program was developed, it, it managed to be copied and built into Windows. And once the Justice Department started talking about antitrust enforcement, it really led to that Cambrian explosion of uh, websites and soft, uh, web-based software apps and I'm wondering if something similar might not happen. Maybe we're at peak Google and peak Facebook, given the mere fact that we're having this hearing. Microsoft might have you know, pulled in some of their claws a little bit when the Justice Department started poking around. Maybe Facebook and Google and Amazon, for that matter, um, throttle back a little bit. Apple's got a ton of criticism for their 30% tax on the App Store, Let's see if anybody wants to change uh, their current business models to sort of keep the wolves uh, away from, uh, you know, the the crown jewels. Barry, when when we do come out, I'll I'll put the glass half empty uh, on on the table here. When we do come out of this pandemic and the economy starts to really right itself, do you expect investors will rotate out of these tech winners and try to find some more value and uh, possible performance from some of the more uh, names that were beaten down, the cyclicals and so on? You know, we've done a couple of studies on this internally. We've, we've crunched a lot of numbers. And I've read other studies from people like Bill Miller and research affiliates and AQR and go down the list. The key determiner as to whether it's value or growth that dominates seems to be some combination of interest rates and inflation. When we are in a low-yield environment and a very low uh, inflationary environment, it does not work to the advantage of value. And in many ways, the cheap cost of capital works to, to the advantage of the bigger, more ambitious tech companies. But if people like Jer- Professor Jeremy Siegel at Wharton are correct, and when we begin to recover and all this pent-up demand, plus all the Fed and congressional stimulus – 
works its way into the economy, you might see a little bump up in inflation. And if it gets to 3 or 4% or more for just a year, a couple of years, that should be advantageous to value stocks. Barry, briefly, you know, at Riddle's Wealth Management, are you buying or selling anything these days? No, we're pretty happy with the way our portfolios are configured. The most recent change we made was last quarter when we added gold to our tactical portfolio. Mm. And um, that, that was a pretty easy call to make when you look at the possibility of inflation and you look at the, the just the overall trend and then the breakout in gold. But the thing that's been driving gold recently has been the inability for the U.S. Congress to agree on any sort of a yeah. uh, second act to the CARES Act compared to Europe. Look at how successfully Europe put through a new stimulus plan and just look at the relationship between the euro and the dollar. The euro was having one of its best runs in a long time. The dollar it did take until five way. in the morning that last day, though. So, Barry, we'll see what happens on Friday. Maybe we'll get something out of Congress. Barry Ritholz with gold at 1948.70 an ounce right now. Thank you for joining us, Barry Ritholz, CEO of Ritholz Wealth Management, Bloomberg Opinion contributor and Masters in Business host. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.